Last week, Danielle started us on a new series entitled M25, which stands for Matthew 25. And that means for the next several weeks, we're going to be hanging out with one passage. Now, traditionally at Spark over the last 11 years, we take a passage, we dig in, we move on. Uh, So it's a very unusual experience for us, I think, to be in a passage for several weeks, which means that you're going to hear some themes over and over again. We're going to read the same passage. I mean, it's the same passage as last week, so we're going to read the same thing. In our um, modern day of consumerism, of innovation, of novelty, uh, whenever churches sometimes participate in series like this, uh, one of the impulses that we have is, can't we just move on? Like, is there something else, something new, something fresh? As we go through this series over the next couple weeks, and we read the same passage over and over and over again, one of the spiritual disciplines that is part of the Christian tradition is to actually notice things that you hadn't noticed before. And so even though I'm going to read the same passage that we read last week, and next week we're going to read the exact same passage, and the week after that the exact same passage, part of the discipline of this series is also to recognize that there are elements in the story that I might have glossed over because our minds attended to one particular thing, but they didn't really focus on, on that other thing. One of the classic examples of this is the parable of the prodigal son. We've taught it, about it as the parable of lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Yes, you know this story. A guy goes off after he demands his father's inheritance, and If you ask most Westerners, most wealthy, industrialized, educated, democratic people, and you say, why did this person run back home? Most people are going to say that it's because he was desperate and because he felt bad, because he had royally screwed up. If you ask somebody who is maybe from a Middle Eastern background or from a developing country or from a part of the world that is very dependent upon the land, they will point out for you, oh, it's because there was a famine. And most of us, when we read that story, we don't pay attention to the famine. But for others, it's a really, really key part of the story. And so as we go through, that's just one example of many So as we go through the M25 series and we read this passage over and over again, my encouragement, exhortation uh, to you is to slow down, read the passage again with fresh eyes and say, maybe there are nuances here that I missed before. That's what we're doing. So let's head into Matthew chapter 25, the same passage that Daniel read last week. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will come, then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it 
that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. I've titled this particular installment of this series, this message, You, Me, These. One of the reasons why reading passages like this can be complicated but also very enriching is because there are layers upon layers of metaphors found in this passage. You'll find this actually through a lot of passages. We have entitled this M25, and what is the cover image? You know what the cover image of the graphic is? What is it? It's a sheep, so we immediately think of shepherd, but there's also the metaphor of a father in there. So because it's sheep and goats, we think shepherd, agrarian, uh, poop, uh, these kinds of things. These are the things that come, uh, very nice, Junior. Those are the things that come to mind. So we think of sheep and we think of goats. There's also the metaphor of the right hand and the left hand. There's also the metaphor of the son of man and the son of God. It's funny because I've read this passage many times over the course of my life. I've never really noticed that right in the middle of sheep and shepherd and goats, this agrarian, Jesus throws in this word king. And it is this element that I would like to captivate our attentions towards and consider carefully. What is Jesus doing in mixing the metaphor from sheep and goats and father and shepherd to king, which is not a, not a very similar category in the social sphere. And to do so, I think it very appropriate to talk about Braveheart. <laughs> yes, when Danielle walked by my screen while I was preparing, she's a, she, the first words out of her mouth were, uh-oh, we're talking about Braveheart. Yes, because when I was middle way through college, this movie hit the theaters, and me and my friends, yes, went to the theater 13 times to see this movie. I, at that particular time, and I know some of you young people are like, when was this? They had just invented the internet, and I logged into prodigy.net, <laughs> downloaded word for word the script of Braveheart, and rather than doing my homework for Bible college, I memorized the entire script before each time I went to the theater. This was how much this movie meant to me at that particular time. And the greatest lines ever spoken in any movie is in this film. Now, I would like to spend the next three hours educating you on why Braveheart is the best movie ever, <laughs> but I don't think that's why you came. Check me later and we'll, I'll take you out for dinner, but for now, just simply because we're talking about king, one of the main elements of the tension of the story is obviously between William Wallace, the great hero of the film. For those of you who don't know the story, I have some slight spoilers, but you'll still definitely want to go see it. Um, and then, of course, King Edward I of England and this battle between the liberation of Scotland. Of Scotland. Sorry, if that comes out, I apologize. I don't mean any offense. It just it sits in the head of Scotland 
uh, and, and against King Edward. And, and this man, I, it takes me back. This is like... To join it, you give homage. You give, give homage, homage to Scotland. Now, part of what's Many going on here... From now, part of what's going on... Is that that phrase there, you give homage, is about loyalty and allegiance. And what William Wallace is trying to do is recognize you do not owe allegiance or loyalty to King Edward. You are free. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, freedom. Oh, sorry. So. Later on in the film, the queen comes, and of course there's this love scene and all this kind of stuff. And here, she's begging him, give your allegiance to the king so that he will spare you his life. If I swear to him that all that I am He's dead already. Oh, I love this so much. We'll die, it will be awful. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Oh, come on, that is good stuff. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Uh, well, it's a little bit more somber than that, but I mean, like, I, I ran around my dorm room screaming that at the top of my lungs. I mean, that's just, sorry, that, I don't know why I said that out loud. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> the film is this tension between the king who demands allegiance and the others who are being oppressed who want freedom, and this tension between the two. And I started to realize that this is actually a theme of kings and people in power and people who have positions of authority. This is a continual theme throughout all of history, that if you happen to be somebody who has a position of authority or stature in any community, it is the default mode that you as the subjects owe me loyalty and allegiance. And some of that comes as a result, by the way, uh, because the king just simply has power. Some of it comes because the king has given you benefit. Oh, I've done something um, to you, for you, so you give me tribute. That, I was thinking about Game of Thrones and Brienne and uh, Jamie Lannister. There was a saving of somebody's life. For those of you who've watched Game of Thrones, there's a saving of somebody's life. And because I have saved your life, now the honor system kicks in and I owe you my life. And I give to you my allegiance. Sometimes it's just pure power, and sometimes it's a principle. It's a principle of the culture, principle of loyalty. So, when you evoke the phrase, the idea of kingship, you are evoking this very concept. This can actually come into positions of politics, nonprofit organizations, businesses, associations. Very easily do positions of power devolve into allegiance to me and things that you are supposed to give to me. And to show that you have allegiance and loyalty, uh, you are to make sure that I am essentially happy with how you act towards me. And this, of course, leads to all sorts of dysfunction and all sorts of chaos and things like that. This is part of the reason why we have another word in our English language called fealty 
which is a way of saying that, well, I just, do, I, I just give to the king or the leader or whoever might happens to be. Now, if you think that this is unique in history, of course it is not. So let's set ourselves back into the first century and try to identify different ways in which kings and the word back in that day is Caesars. King and Caesar is essentially the same kind of idea because Jesus grew up, taught, lived, did his ministry in a context in which kings were a reality. We don't have kings today in the same way. I mean, I don't know for those of you who actually like to follow the royals uh, in England, I have no clue what's going on there, but some of you are really into that. But even there, it's not the same kind of thing. We don't really have the same kind of thing. And so when Jesus evokes the word king and the concept, we have to kind of remind ourselves what kind of world you would have lived in if there really was a king, and what kind of loyalty and allegiance that would have demanded you. So this is such a brief survey and just some highlights of the story. Julius Caesar becomes the first Caesar, first king of Rome, right before Jesus does. His son Octavian takes the throne after Julius dies. But when Julius dies, there's a comet that shows up in the sky. Some of you heard us tell the story before. And the comet is now told as Julius ascending into the heaven as a god. He becomes deified. And that begins the process of the deification of the Roman emperors. You can see the word divius, the divine Julius, on his coin. Well, his son Octavian, believing that his father was God and I'm now going to take the throne, what would that make me as his son? That would make me the son of God. And so Octavian takes the throne as Octavian, but recognizes that I'm not just a ne the next king, I'm the son of God, so my name should actually change. And so he names himself, after he becomes Gaius Caesar, he renames himself Augustus, which means the worshipped one. That's why in your Bible, Jesus was born during the time of Caesar Augustus and not Caesar Octavian. Because Octavian says, I'm king now. I am the worshipped one. And part of the reason why that name is just so rich with tension is because Augustus is the worshipped one. And here is the new king that is being born to be worshipped. So that's at the beginning. Now, towards the end of the Christian story, there's another guy, and we could go through Nero and Caligula and Claudius. I mean, these, these guys are just amazing, and the history that we have on them is really insightful. Uh, so let's go to the end. This is 81 to 96. So we started at the beginning before Jesus. Now we're going to end. This is about the time of post-Paul, and the church is starting to flourish. Christians are multiplying. So Domitian is on the throne. And we have some historical records that talk about him being one of the worst of the worst emperors regarding this divine association and his exaltation of himself. Uh, Lucius Dio Cassio writes about, uh, writes about Domitian this way. The same emperor, having been defeated, laid the blame on his commanders. For though he claimed for himself all the successes, none of which was due to him, he blamed others for his failures. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay, seriously, who does this? Do you know anybody in positions of power who are ultimate failures and then blame other people for that? 
Uh, but, but then when good things happen that he had nothing to do with, takes all the credit, right? You don't know anybody like that, right? So Cassius writes this. So many honors were voted to him that almost the whole world, so far it was under his dominion, was filled with his images and statues constructed of both silver and gold. One of the statues, the elements made out of gold, is this temple to Domitian in the city of Ephesus. Now, you can't see it because it's been destroyed. Here's an artist's rendering of what it may have looked like upon two stories and on top was approximately a 30-foot statue of Domitian at the top of this, at the harbor to Ephesus, so that when people came in for their goods and services to trade, there was Domitian standing there. And you would pay homage, and you would give honor to the king. In addition to that, there was an altar to Domitian at Ephesus and at multiple cities, wherever there might happen to be a place called an agora, what we would call in modern English a mall, a place that you would go and shop. It's really fascinating to walk through ancient agorae, agorises? Agori. Many of those places, and to think this is exactly what a mall is. There's these shops that are uh, tucked away into these niches. Now, the reason why this altar is important is because when Domitian got on the throne, it seems and appears, according to some historical records that we have, is that you're about to participate in trade, and you're going to get good things. Well, if you're going to get good things, according to that Cassius quote, who should get the credit? Domitian should get the credit. So before you go in to trade, to buy, to sell, you're supposed to take some incense that they had at the entrance, sprinkle it on the fire of Domitian, and the smoke would rise up as a way of declaring your allegiance. How would the shopkeepers know whether or not you've done that? Apparently, you would receive a charcoal mark either on your hand or on your forehead to indicate that you had actually pledged allegiance and loyalty to the king. Later, Christians would call that the mark of the beast because they didn't believe that Domitian was anywhere near, of course, God and sacred. They would call him an animal. So this is part of the Domitian cult and part of this idea. Even to go shopping, you would give your allegiance and fealty to Domitian. For he even insisted upon being regarded as a god and took vast pride in being called master and god. These titles were used not merely in speech, but also in written documents. Those phrases, by the way, god, of course, is the word theos. That word master there that Cassius uses is the word despotas, as in despot. So these are just some brief sketches of what a king would demand and what honestly is due to a king, loyalty, allegiance, indebtedness. And this is honestly just because I am the king. When Jesus does his teaching and when there's discussion of king and kingdom mixed in with the metaphor of shepherd and sheep, we have to remember that what he's talking about are some of those people. And oftentimes, the language that's used in your Bible, when they declare Jesus to be king or declare Jesus to be Lord, they are essentially saying, Caesar is not. And this is a persistent theme found throughout our text. In popular Christian culture today, 
It is very frequently known and understood that if you are a dedicated Christian, recognizing, declaring that Jesus is King or Jesus is Lord is a fundamental confession. If you happen to love Jesus, follow Jesus, are a Christian, then you recognize that Jesus is Lord over your life. You actually, depending upon your tradition, might say that at your particular baptism, and then you would declare it out into the world. This is for good reason, of course. There are plenty of passages that speak of this. We're not arguing against that reality. In fact, uh, this is just a small sample of the declaration of Jesus as king. And as I mentioned before, what the authors are doing there is very subversive, very much in your face against the Caesar. So let's just recognize that when you see this, this is honestly correct in the sense that Christianity declares that, the Bible teaches it, it's part of the tradition, we use the word kingdom, we, heck, we say it every single week, your kingdom come, your will be done. So, I mean, in many ways, your kingdom is a declaration of Jesus as king. So, let's just be honest with that. But what we mean when we say Jesus is king is very convoluted because of Braveheart, <laughs> Godfather, Game of Thrones, Caesars. Corporate CEOs, rich, wealthy politicians. Even our particular culture today infuses us with the idea that kingship is power, prestige, status, social, etc. Just go down the line. So even when I was looking this up, this is from a, the, probably one of the most famous Bible software programs that exists from Logos. Ten Bible verses that teach us that Jesus is king. They even make a clarification. Bible's full of verses that describe who Jesus is, king. Although Jesus came to earth as a humble servant, he is the king of kings. And there's a little bit of ambiguity in that phrase, but one of the ways that you can interpret that is that being a humble servant has nothing to do with being king of kings. There seems to be some indication that to declare Jesus king is in tension with or in conflict with this idea of being a humble servant. And so when we declare Jesus to be king, put it on our bumper stickers, declare it as a Christian, we are sometimes infused with that same idea. And pastors and preachers and teachers and Bible teachers, etc., many of you already know this, take therefore on that persona, that idea of power, position, prestige, forcefulness, and demand loyalty and allegiance if I happen to be the man or the woman of God who is declaring the gospel into the world. It's so subtle and gosh darn pernicious because even we are still being influenced by this idea that the king demands that. And well, shoot, if I'm a if I'm a well-known ministry person, or if I'm at the top of my game, or if I happen to be up here, then I also should demand it because I'm following Jesus, my rabbi, and Jesus was king, so why can't I just be like a mini king under Jesus? So let's just read a little bit and remind ourselves what's really going on in these passages. What is Jesus actually declaring and teaching about this kingship? Well, one of them, and this is only one, Matthew 7, for example. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, good teacher, which is a way of giving allegiance and honor, loyalty, etc., honor, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Not everyone who says to me, and here's the phrase, Lord, Lord, curios, curios, it's the same title that is given to the king, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, listen carefully, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, pledging allegiance, calling Jesus Lord and King, doesn't cut it. Putting that bumper sticker on your car is not what Jesus is calling you to. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what gets you into heaven or gets you to inherit eternal life. What does? Doing the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, did, on that day many is going to say, Lord, Lord, did we prophesied in your name, cast out demons. Then he's going to declare, I never knew you. Because your declaration of loyalty and allegiance to me is really not the thing. Later on in this passage, he goes on to describe what that action is supposed to be. And he declares activity, behavior in accordance with God's will to be like building your house upon a rock versus building your house upon sand. You know this passage. And oftentimes, we sometimes think that's allegiance to Jesus. No, he just said, doing the will of the Father. Doing, the, I mean, let that sit in. It is not what you believe, declare, or your allegiance to how high of a stature you put Jesus in your mental model of hierarchy. Are you doing the will of the Father? This is a really key element. Christian theology misses this as well. And again, I don't want to be hypercritical, but we want to critique and ask some serious questions. For example, one of the most famous confessions is called the Westminster Catechism. It is a declaration of the core fundamental elements that we believe as Christians if you're part of this Reformation tradition. One of them is, sorry, not one of them, one of the top ones is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the goal. Glorify God and enjoy God. And that is sufficiently ambiguous to, I suppose, allow you to interpret that in a lot of different ways that you want. Calvinism, another part of the Christian tradition that many of us have been influenced under that still exists in so many churches today, they just don't call it this, has this thing called a high view of God, which is why they have the theologies that they have. But what that manifests itself in many times is this low view of humanity. And so because we believe so much in who God is, then humanity really is on a lower level. And these are just two examples of different ways in which this moral and value hierarchy manifests itself in our theology. I would like to remind us, however, of what Jesus says here in Matthew 25. Because he goes through, as you already know, as Danielle so eloquently shared last week, that we are supposed to be clothing those who are naked, visiting those who are sick, uh, feeding those who are hungry, uh, visiting those who are in prison. These are the things that are part, are central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be in this way. But the phraseology that Jesus uses here, again, one of the nuances is the king. The king. The ki 
he talks about my father, the son of man, and then he says, but the king is going to answer. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. And I started thinking about Caesar. I thought a lot about Braveheart. I thought a lot about all of these different types of things that come along with king. And even in Christianity, we want to give so much attention to Jesus, which appropriately so. Again, we're not going to deny that that be the reality. But what Jesus seems to be doing here is like, you want to give allegiance to me? You want to give loyalty to me? You want to serve me? The way you serve me is not by erecting statues or not by putting my name everywhere, uh, not by declaring celebrations and commemorations. Those are what the Caesars did. You want to give your allegiance and service to me? Serve these people. These. I am the king. I do deserve allegiance, loyalty, service in that exact same way. And you, you should give it to the king. And what the king is saying is, they are the king. Anybody in your sphere who is hungry and thirsty, who is sick or in prison, who does not have, treat them the way you would treat me. Fealty, service, allegiance, and loyalty belong to them. And when you give that to them, that's when you're giving it to me. And this is a radical departure from what kingship really suggests throughout history, even up to this particular day. Loyalty, allegiance, Indebtedness to Jesus means to serve the least of these. Listen, for those Christians who believe that you should love Jesus with all your heart, that you're supposed to enjoy God, that God is the ultimate, Jesus is the ultimate, he's the king, he's the Lord, he's the highest of all things, great, that is what is taught. What it means is now get to work finding the people that need your help. That's what that means, to declare that Jesus is king. This is very similar to, I mean, there's so many different ways in which we could articulate this. This is exactly our previous series. At the very beginning, when Daniel was talking about Peter's calling, at the very end of the gospel according to John, Peter wants to follow Jesus. Do you love me? I mean, it's like me. You're supposed to love me, right? Jesus says, feed my sheep. That's how you love me. You don't love me by giving me gifts and sacrifices and all this kinds of stuff. You want to love me. You want to serve me. You want to give your loyalty and allegiance to me. Serve these people. Serve these. Jesus, the king, as rightfully declared, has no statues. There is not one statue erected to Jesus in the first century. There's plenty now. No monuments. No required priestly incantations. There are no coins minted that declare Jesus to be divine. And there are no temples and no buildings set up for the worship of Jesus. Because his movement understood, and you can read this through the book of Acts, his movement understood, you're not supposed to give fealty to me. My movement as the ruler, as the king, is to serve these. That's what I'm doing here. And so, Jesus the king has no tolerance for injustice, no patience for religious abuse, no sympathies for the wealthy 
and no compassion for the powerful. This is a completely upside down, completely reverse understanding of what a king should be and what a king should do. Now, let me suggest that there's some questions that emerge, rightfully so. But what about worship? Aren't we supposed to worship Jesus? Didn't the disciples bow down and worship Jesus? Yes. First of all, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the standard traditions that many of us participate in. Let me make that absolutely clear. I don't see anything in our scriptures, in our tradition, that would suggest that this particular teaching that I'm sharing nullifies all the other practices. So worship, yes. Man, Let's do some more worship. Let's glorify God. Let's celebrate who Jesus is. But second, let's also ask the question, what the heck is worship? Did you know that in Greek and in Hebrew, the word worship is the word service? That's what that word is. But, but Jesus died for me. So doesn't that demand a reciprocation? Yes. You are exactly right. It does demand the it does demand a loyalty. It does demand an allegiance. The question is, what did Jesus require as your allegiance? Read carefully Matthew 25. That's what Jesus required. But but I love Jesus and I wanted to, I just so he's my buddy. And Jesus loves me. Okay? And for those of you who want to really embrace this affectionate God, do it. That's fine. But then ask the question, what does love actually require? Because frequently when we say, but I love Jesus, we are talking about how we feel towards Jesus rather than actually laying down your life to ask the question, what does that kind of love require and demand of us? So my friends, I would suggest that Matthew 25 uses all these metaphors. The king metaphor is incredibly piercing because a king demands loyalty and allegiance and service. And the king themselves would say, give that to me. And by equating these, that whole list of people who are disenfranchised, ostracized, marginalized on society, by equating those people with the king, Jesus is doing something truly radical. Give your allegiance to Jesus. Give your loyalty and service by serving these. One of the people in evangelical history that has been doing this work incredibly over the last several decades, he's recently passed away, is Ron Sider. He's the founder of Christians for Social Action. It used to be called Evangelicals for Social Action. Many of you know that that word evangelical kind of went out of usage recently. So anyway, they've renamed themselves Christians for Social Action. And he's written in some incredible books. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Moving from Affluence to Generosity was a really piercing book on, on economic justice. The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience was about our intellectualism, uh, scandal of evangelical politics, loving our enemies. He's just been on this for decades in this very same idea. One of his books that he's written is called I Am Not a Social Activist, which is something that I feel that many of us at Spark have been trying to communicate uh, and articulate. 
because of some of the things that we do, because of some of the things we teach, because of some of that stuff, there's like, oh, you're the social gospel church, you're the liberal, right? All these terms that we have. And I so appreciated what he wrote in here. It's a series of short essays that declare and articulate, look, the reason why I care for the poor is because I'm dedicated to Jesus. The reason why I serve the sick and the hungry is because I'm dedicated to Jesus. He writes uh, in one of his opening essays, I am not a social activist. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of the universe. This is the driving force behind, behind him and the organization. Jesus, you're the center. He, he ends with this prayer in this essay. Jesus, you're the center of our joy, our vision, our ministry. We are not social activists. We are disciples of Jesus, the carpenter, creator, and risen Lord of the universe. When you understand Jesus as king in the way that Ron Sider understands Jesus as king, Lord of the universe, creator, then you end up with work like Christians for Social action, trying to take care of the challenges, the marginalization of people, the injustices of the world, because that's what allegiance looks like. I had this um, thought, what if you were to have this question, this conversation with Jesus? What if you were standing next to Jesus and Look, we are all from very different spiritual backgrounds. We're all on different paths and different ways of, of navigating our, our, our faith and et cetera. But at some particular point, maybe you become very much enthralled, moved, wooed, seduced by Jesus and the Jesus movement, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the entirety of the story, the gospel, right? And something moves you, as, as it should. And you want to say, my life now is yours, Jesus, which is part of what it means to be a disciple, part of what it means to give your life over. My life is now yours, Jesus. And you were to ask Jesus this question, out of my allegiance and loyalty, Jesus, how do I serve you? And I kind of had this imagine uh, thought in my mind. He would go, me? Me? Serve me? That, that doesn't make any sense. These. And that's why with the title, you, me, these. That's where your allegiance and loyalty go. As we come to a time of communion, I would encourage us to consider once again the nuances, the depths, the beautiful intricacies of what this table stands for. And again, the table stands for Jesus' sacrifice, giving up. And it is natural for us to recognize, I, I want to give my life to a person who gave their life to me. That is a reasonable act of reciprocal kindness. But this Matthew 25 passage, as well as the scope of Jesus' teachings is, as you take this in remembrance of me, don't forget what I meant by saying, follow me. It's, you don't serve me, you serve these. So go serve them. For in the night in which he was betrayed, 
our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My dear friends, all are truly welcome at this table. As we sing, please come and partake.